0: I'm Katie, and thanks for checking out this message today. We're glad you and your family are here, and we would love to get connected with you. One easy way you can do that is text River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website, theriverchurch.cc, to learn more about us and some upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, good morning, church. My name... Oh, I didn't expect to respond. <laughs> I'm used to a smaller location, sorry. So my name's Chris Monville. I am the student director and the young adults director over at our Wald Lake location. Um, I am just blessed with the opportunity to speak this morning Um, I'm also in the second year of Pastors Academy with Elijah, so I've gotten to know Elijah pretty well, I know Cam pretty well, and uh, Pastor Josh Yates, every time he's in Pastors Academy speaking to us, it's just some of my favorite weeks, so I'm honored to speak to the same congregation that he gets to speak to every week. Um, So thank you for having me this morning. Um, So this is a rare Preacher's Choice week uh, at the River. Usually we have our series, but we wrapped it up last week, so this morning I'm honored to get to speak to you this morning about my favorite Bible verse. And over the last five years, this has become my favorite Bible verse, just as I've, I've seen it play out um, in my own life. And when I think of this passage, I think of myself as a new believer in college. Uh, I got saved in college, and the truths in this passage are things that I wish would have been explained to me um, as a new believer. Um, a little over five years ago, I had a, a mentor step into my life, and he's really the one who introduced me to this topic. Um, you know, I'd been saved by a few years, um, for a few years by that point, uh, but I never really was never really taught what my walk was supposed to look like, um, or how I was supposed to go out, go about it. And I think that this passage gives us something real and tangible to hold on to when it comes to actually walking out our faith. You know, our faith is not just a one-time event where we get saved and we just kind of do our best to not sin anymore and that's it, right? But what's, what's actually happening to us? Why do we do that? And what's happening to us when we go throughout our walk? And I think this passage paints such a beautiful picture of, of our walk with Christ And having walked with him for a little over a decade now, I can look back and I can see this passage in action. So if you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, I hope that this encourages you, that you'd be able to look back and see biblically how God has been moving and shaping you in your life. And if you can't, then I hope that this process can start for you today. And if you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior Uh, I want you to know that following Jesus will change your life, and I hope to show you how that will happen this morning. And notice I say how and not if, because following Jesus will absolutely change your life. So our main passage we're going to focus on is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 3. That's where our main focus is going to be. Um, I do want to let you know, since this passage is not just, it's not just a, a one-off reference, it's very thick, and there's a lot of cross-references all throughout Scripture, so I'm going to be kind of jumping around to a lot of Scripture, but don't worry about flipping everywhere. Uh, the verses will be on the screen, um, but just wanted to let you know <clears throat> that I'll be going through a lot of Scripture this morning. Um, there's also one more disclaimer to this, to this message, and that's that I'm going to be saying <clears throat> a lot of challenging things this morning, and I want you to know that um, I'm right there with you in that, and so I don't want anything I say this morning to come off as me trying to sound more holy or anything like that, um, but I just want to talk about what Scripture says and what we're called to, and so I'm right there with you in that fight, and so I just want that to be known before we go into any of this. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into the Scripture together. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and the truth in it. I pray that you would allow your word to speak to us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would move um, in me to help speak the truth and in all of our hearts to hear the truth, God. And I pray that you would do a work this morning and that we would just keep our eyes on you and seek you more and more wholeheartedly in our walk. In Jesus' name, amen. So, while this message is going to focus on verse 18, uh, we're going to start by reading verses 12 through 18 for some additional context that leads up to that verse. So, starting in verse 12 in 2 Corinthians 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... The same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And here's our key verse. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So I want to start by kind of laying some, some initial context and groundwork for understanding this passage before we dig too, too into it. So Paul compares the old covenant to the new covenant uh, in this chapter quite a lot. So that's what he's talking about in verse 12, where he says, since we have such a hope. So the hope that he's talking about there is the new covenant. So first thing I want to do is just to define covenant, right? It's kind of a churchy word that kind of goes over our heads sometimes. Uh, but the co- covenant simply just means an agreement or the terms of a relationship. So what is the old covenant? What are the old terms? It's the law that's given through Moses. And the new covenant is the gospel. And we'll define that in a moment. So let's break this down. In verse 13, it talks about the veil Moses would put over his face. So let's understand the context here and we'll bring it back full circle. So verse 13 says, Not like Moses... Who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So, this is actually a reference to Exodus 34, uh, verses 29 through 35. I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. So, this is the, the second time Moses is going up to Mount Sinai. So, he comes down the first time and sees the golden calf, right? Gets upset, smashes the tablets. So, this is now the second time he's going up. He's got fresh tablets in his hand. And he's going to rewrite down what God is uh, telling him up on the mountain. So when he comes back down from the mountain that second time with the new tablets, his face is beaming or glowing, Uh, it's shining with God's glory because he was in the presence of God for so long. And so when the people see his face kind of glowing, they're kind of afraid to come near him at first um, because, you know, you'd be freaked out, right, if someone's face was glowing. So he kind of calms him down, calls him over, tells him what God, you know, told him up on the mountain, and then he puts this veil over his face to dim or to hide that glow around the Israelites. Uh, moving forward. And every time he'd go into the tent of meeting to talk with God again, he'd lift the veil, talk with God. When he'd come out of the tent of meeting, he'd put the veil back down to kind of dim that glow in his face. So throughout 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's really hitting the comparison, like I said, between the old and the new covenant. So verses 7 through 9 in 2 Corinthians 3 says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So here he calls the Old Covenant the ministry of death, and in verse 9 he calls it the ministry of condemnation. Why does he use those words? Romans 7.7 7 says, Yet it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." Romans 4:15For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And just a couple verses earlier in second Corinthians three verses five and six say, "Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. But of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, what are these three verses saying? They're simply saying that we can't live up to the law. The law brought death because it made us aware of our own sin. It made us aware that we cannot earn it. We can't earn salvation for ourselves. And the law just points out our sinful flesh. But don't get it wrong, because the Bible says the law is good. Romans 7.12 says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But the next verse in Romans 7 clarifies, verse 13 says, Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So all that the old covenant has to offer us is awareness that we can't earn God's favor. We can't do it, and we can't live up to his standard. So what about the new covenant? Back to 2 Corinthians 3, verses 8 and 9. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. So ministry of the Spirit and ministry of righteousness are what he calls the new covenant here. And the Jews knew that a new covenant was coming. This wouldn't have been a new concept for them, because the Old Testament prophesies about it, Jeremiah 31:33. "For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days," declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their people and they sh- or be their God and they shall be my people." So how did God accomplish this? By sending His son to fulfill the law for us. Matthew five seventeen, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, God is a holy God, and we are a sinful people who can't live up to the law. And Romans six twenty three tells us that the wages of sin is death. So how is sin dealt with in the old covenant, right? It's through animal sacrifice. But animals are not made in God's image the way that humans are. And so they could never fully pay the price for sin. They were temporary substitutes, not a permanent solution. And Hebrews 10.4 tells us that, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what we know is that there's a payment that's required for sin, right? And God is just because he can't just ignore sin. And Jesus takes on that punishment for us. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Romans five eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, my sin cost Jesus his life. And it is only because of him that I can have eternal life and unity with God again, not by anything that I brought to the table. Romans five ten for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? This is the New covenant. Luke 22:20, 20, we just took communion, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, Jesus says, "This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood." So the new covenant is Jesus' blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. See, God did what we couldn't do. So let's remember what covenant means, right? It's the agreement or the terms of a relationship. So what are the terms of my relationship with God in this new covenant? Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we need to acknowledge the sin in our life. We need to see it, and we need to accept the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us. And there's no way to have a relationship with God without that acceptance. And this acceptance looks like us seeing our sin and saying, God, I'm sorry, and I trust you, and I believe that you paid for this. Please save me. And without Jesus' payment, God's righteous wrath is on us because of our sin. It needs to be paid for, and Jesus paid that price. Relationship with God is available to us if we accept that payment. And if what's being laid out is making sense for you for the first time, please talk to someone after the gathering. Because this has the opportunity to be the best day of your life. So let's bring this back to 2 Corinthians 3.18, now that we have the context of the old covenant and how Moses wore the veil over his face and comparing that to the new covenant that's in the blood of Christ. So verse 18 starts by saying this, and we all with unveiled face. So what's being unveiled? are faces, right? Two verses earlier, verse 16 says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So when we turn to the Lord and follow him, he opens our eyes to a whole new reality, right? The real reality where we see things as they are. We see Jesus as king and the real brokenness that our sin creates. See, our eyes are opened to see Jesus. So how does this vision affect us, right? You see, the verb in verse 18 that's used for unveiled is in the perfect passive tense. So what that means is that it describes a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present. So let's simplify that. It simply means that the work is done, but it's producing a current state in you. So what should we be doing in this current state? Let's read the next part of the verse, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So what are we beholding? Glory. And whose glory? Of the Lord. We keep our eyes on the Lord. This word beholding in the Greek is, is related to looking in a mirror, which points back to Paul's previous letter to the Corinthians, First Corinthians thirteen twelve it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we're looking into this mirror, which is hard to see in, on this side of eternity right now. But we're trying to see the Lord. But the fact that it's hard to see or that it's dim doesn't mean that we can't see Jesus. It just means that it's harder to. And Jesus himself wanted us to behold his glory when he was praying in the garden. John seventeen twenty four says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the, farm, before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus wants us to pursue him intimately. And the idea of spiritual warfare, I think, creates a lot of, carries a lot of weight. And we generally think of the most intense situations of it or serious situations of it, like exorcisms and stuff like that. And I believe those things are real, uh, but we need to understand something else about spiritual warfare. And that's that it is happening in your daily walk, every day. I'm not saying that we all need to go get an exorcism performed on us, but I, what I am saying is spiritual warfare looks like this, right? It's, it's You know you should read your Bible, but you want to watch Netflix instead. You're reading your Bible, and you're getting distracted while you're trying to focus. right? It's your fleshly desire trying to convince you that you don't need to spend time with God today. Romans 7, 22 and 23 say, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, we're all in a fight, whether we realize it or not. And we need to be willing to fight to see him. Exodus 19.20 says, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. See, we all, through Jesus' sacrifice, have the ability to go up the mountain. And we should all be going up the mountain to be with God. I'm taking this illustration from Francis Chan, but I think he hit the nail on the head. He, He said, church, especially in America, often gets viewed as this idea of the pastor goes up the mountain throughout the week, and then on Sunday morning, we all gather to hear what the pastor learned on Sunday, you know, being up the mountain all week but this was not the goal of church the, the the total goal of church we should all be going up the mountain throughout the week we all have the ability to commune with him and it's exactly what we're called to do we need to be seeking him and beholding him so where are our eyes right are they on him 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse six says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Psalm twenty seven eight says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Exodus thirty three eleven says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. See, Moses spoke to God like they were friends. Do you? Think of, your, think of your best friend, right? Someone you think you could tell anything to. Is this how we view God? And I, I want to challenge us all to kind of look past the, oh, I can talk to God about anything kind of cover or mantra, because yes, that's true. But I want everyone to do a real heart check this morning. Do you actually talk to him like this? Do you really believe that he views you as a friend? Do you believe that God actually likes you? And that's the truth, right? And that's the truth that we need to be operating out of when we think of God, is that he loves you deeper than any friend ever could, and he gave you your personality, right? Is God anti-fun or anti-sin? Because there is a difference. And he is our father and our friend and he loves his children. And don't just agree with that because it's a christian saying, right? Do you really believe that in your heart? Do you even want to go up the mountain to talk to your friend? One commentary points out, what is emphasized in this passage is that Moses' experience of the Lord in the tent of meeting is equivalent to the experience of the Spirit in Paul's ministry. See, God wants you to seek him and there's so much joy in that pursuit. You see our circumstances will change, we'll have highs and lows, that's a guarantee. But regardless of the season, he is there and we can go into that tent of meeting with him. But we have to go in and not just talk about going in. Hebrews 12:1 and 2 says, "Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely" And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So, the mentor I mentioned uh, who stepped into my life about five years ago, um, he would say this phrase to me a lot. He would say, There is joy in the struggle. And I never forgot that saying. And you know, it's hard to believe at times, right? But it's our call to seek him regardless of our present situation. And that's very very hard at times. You know, our our walk as Christians is not always the mountaintops, right? We experience the valleys as well. But what should our time in the valley look like? It should look like us clawing our way back to that mountaintop, back to God. See, we're called to have that hunger in us to get back to that mountaintop. If Moses came down from the mountain and his face was glowing from God's glory, what do people see when they look at us? What do we look like to the world, right? Do they see God's glory when they look at us? Are we shining with a radiance that only God can give? Romans fifteen thirteen says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Do we have that joy and peace? Are we abounding in hope? right? Or is the glory from our face fading as we neglect him? See, Jesus is not just a concept in the back of our mind. He is a king who is alive and active in the world around us. And we need to be striving to see him move. We need to fix our eyes on him. So that pursuit, what does it produce, right? What happens to us while we pursue Jesus? Going back to Second Corinthians three eighteen, it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into what? Into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into it. So the tense of the verb transformed here is the present passive and is indicative. So present just means that it's happening right now. Passive just means that we're being acted upon by the Holy Spirit in this case, as the end of the verse tells us. And indicative just means that it is real and actual. And the root word for image means to resemble or to be like. And this process is called sanctification. You've probably heard it before, but it's all over the Bible. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Corinthians 15.49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Colossians 3.10, and have put, to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You Church, when we seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit is transforming us to be more like him. I want to say that again. When we seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit is transforming us to be more like him. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. Uh, one commentary states, the transfor- this transformation is in reverse order of Moses' experience. First, by effecting a moral transformation into God's image, which we express by living according to his commandments, commandments which express his nature. And that moral change is progressive. So that willing exposure to the sunlight of God's presence, being intentional with our pursuit, will burn his image ever deeper into our character and will. And ultimately, at Christ's appearance, we will undergo a physical transformation in glory. You see, this moral transformation is a process. You want to know something that uh, stuck out to me a lot as I started reading the Bible as an adult? And that's this concept of time. So We also often read Bible stories, and as we're reading, we kind of gloss over um, we assume things happen one after the other. We can kind of gloss over the small details of how long it took between things. It can be easy to miss. But Sarah waited 25 years before the birth of her appointed child, Isaac. David waited 15 years to be king. And Rebecca waited 20 years to give birth to Jacob and Esau. And those are just three examples. John 16:20 20 through 22 says, truly, This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So there are no silver bullets in sanctification. It is all a process. There's lyrics to a song that I like that say, uh, we are sanctified by suffering. And Christianity offers a real hope through suffering. It promises that it's not in vain. And it's hard to keep our eyes on him during it, absolutely But that is where the growth is. It is in that process. Pastor Louis Giglio put it this way. He said, God wants to do do something in you so that he can set you up to do something through you, now and in the future. And this transformation is part of the reason you were saved. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And there's more lyrics from a different song that I like that say, salvation is free, but transformation will cost cost you everything. And I I didn't understand what that was trying to say for a very long time. See, when I was in college, a lot of the verbiage I heard was, uh, you're free in Christ, right? When I got saved and was told I'm free, that was great. However, I came down uh, from that kind of initial high after a couple weeks, right, and took a look around in my life and And I thought, you know, I I don't feel free, right? I still wanted to sin, right? Why did I still want to sin? I thought I was free. And the first thing, there's a couple things I learned from that. The first thing I learned was that how I feel does not change the truth. However, I also did not fully understand the truth. I didn't understand that temptation does not go away, right? Your flesh does not just go away. And I don't know about you, but my flesh is very loud. However, the key to this entire process is this. It's that you are free in Christ. This does not mean that life will be easy, but it means that you have the ability to deny your flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to say that again. You are free in Christ. It does not mean that life will be easy, but it means that you have the ability to, to deny your flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus won the war. He rose from the dead, defeating sin. It's over. And the only power it has left is the power that you give it. And did you ever notice that when Jesus, when he's in the, in the wilderness for 40 days, uh, uh, getting tempted by the devil, he can't actually make him do anything? The devil can't make you do anything but he can try and convince you of what you should or shouldn't do. So when we do what do we do when temptation comes, right? We seek him. We look up. Even when we don't know when it will end, we trust him that it will. And if we fail, we get back up and keep seeking after him by his grace alone. There is joy in the struggle. There's, there's one more key piece to this whole equation, and that's the church. See, God uses the church to transform your heart. Proverbs 27:17. I think we've all heard it. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So what happens is, is when we get saved, we're on fire for the Lord. But that glory shining in our face often fades as we stop fighting for it, and it will fade. We need to be a part of picking each other's heads up. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is my favorite verse because I've experienced it. It gave me a depth to my relationship with Jesus that I needed to get me through difficult times. It helped me understand my freedom in Christ and it's an aspect of our Christian faith that I wish more people talked about because I think it's huge. So, The mentor that I've referenced three times now um, walked me through some of the hardest things I've struggled with in my life up to this point. And my heart is filled with gratitude towards him, but he always told me repeatedly, he said, I'm just another beggar pointing to where the bread is. And that's what the church should look like. So let's be a church that looks up. I'm going to end with a quote from A.J. Gossip, and I think this quote is just amazing, so I want to let it sit. He asks, Do you believe a day is coming, really coming, when you will stand before the throne of God and the angels will whisper together and say how like Christ he is. That is not easy to believe and yet not to believe it is blasphemy. For that, not less than that, is what Christ promises. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you do in our lives. God, we know that you work in our lives. I pray this morning that we would see it, that we would acknowledge it, that we would be willing to lay down every desire that we have at your feet and have faith, have the faith that you call us to have. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for what your son did on the cross. I pray that we would just grow more and more deeply in love with you in our walk with you. In Jesus' name.